0: So we're continuing with our study of of Vasubandhu, the three natures. And we're on verse 9. I think this week I'm using uh, Jay Garfield's translations. Verse 9. The first, because it itself ripens, is the root consciousness. And in this case, when he says the first, he means the Eighth Consciousness, the Alaya, Vijnana. The first, because it it itself ripens, is the Root Consciousness. The others are emergent consciousnesses, having emerged from the conceptualization of Seer and Seen. So in in the last verse we covered uh, verse 8 last week you know the opening verses define the three natures uh and in the last verse we did last week verse eight, verse 8 Vasubandhu says that these eight consciousnesses which actually uh, he doesn't uh He doesn't define the eight consciousnesses in in the text. We have to, that that comes in by way of the commentary. But in the last verse he said that the eight consciousnesses can be divided into three categories. First comes Alaya, or the storehouse of all experience that contains the potential for all worlds, all happenings which he calls ripening. In other words, Alaya is the uh, potential that is actualized in the process or flow of development of the universes. It's time, it's occurrences, it's the sphere in which everything ripens and takes place. So that's the first category in the last verse. The second category in verse 8 is duality or causality, meaning that this undifferentiated flow of happenstance gets divided into a perceiver and a perceived which are different from each other. There's a doer and a deed. There's a viewer and a scene to be viewed and these two sides interact which causes the world to appear. And that's the seventh consciousness, the self-consciousness and in verse 8 he said the third category of consciousness is the imaginary appearances of the world parikalpita and that's the six sense consciousnesses and, and the whole experience of the of the world passing by so that's what he said last time he divided the eight consciousnesses into three baskets and this time he in the next verse he's saying well now we can also look at them in two categories alaya or the root consciousness, which in Zen, following Taoist terminology, sometimes we call the source. I think in the Sandokai it says the source shines clearly in the light, the branching streams flow in the darkness. That's what they mean. They're talking about alaya. So that's the one category. And the second category is the other seven. Here, the emergent consciousness, the self-consciousness, along with the six Consciousnesses that perceive the world—all of that is put in one basket. So you know, it's—it's it's in a way, it's a little hard to uh, really appreciate. Like, why is he? Why is he doing this? Why? Why does he say first? He says, "Okay, eight consciousnesses." Now, there's—we th- can put them into two, three groups. We can put them into two groups. Well, what is he? Why does he have to go into all of these kinds of distinctions and categories? And what, what is what is the point? Well. It seems like what he's doing now, in these subsequent verses, is having defined these three natures. Uh, he's trying to say more, looking at them, you know from different angles to make it clear exactly what these eight consciousnesses and three natures are, and what they're not, and why they're important. So he's just trying to make this point. Uh, more clear for us, even though so far I don 't know how clear it actually is, but that 's what he 's trying to do so as as we know early Buddhism already has the idea of flow of experiences right that's the that's the alternative to self clinging there's no self there's a flow of experiences so that's already there from the very beginning in Buddhism and uh, and from the very beginning, it's pretty clear that consciousness is absolutely essential in that flow. Because there's no perception without consciousness. There's I and object and contact and then consciousness and then there's sight. So that's, all of that is already in Buddhism. We don't need Yogacara to tell us that Buddhism holds that. So now we're kind of thinking, well, what's the virtue of adding the concept of Alaya Vijnana? And I think the virtue is, and as we're going to see as the text unfolds, we'll see it more and more, the virtue of it is that when you propose the concept of Alaya Vijnana, you are really emphasizing consciousness more strongly. You're kind of setting it aside in a way and emphasizing it more and you're showing how pivotal and important consciousness is. It's already there, that thought, in early Buddhism, but with this new conceptualization, it emphasizes it more. And I think the reason that Vasubandhu wants to emphasize consciousness so much uh, is, I think, there are at least two reasons. First of all, because, you know, the yoga in Yogacara means uh, practice you know, yoga practice. Not, not asanas, but meditation. So, so Vasubandhu really wants to emphasize meditation, which again was also in early Buddhism, but it was not sort of taken out and emphasized so much. So he wants to tell us that since consciousness is so central, the practice that is the best direct method for investigating consciousness, which is meditation, is really, really important. So that's the first thing that is done by this emphasis. The second thing is that when he emphasizes Alaya, <clears throat> which he keeps calling over and over again, ripening, it's, it's like this is the storehouse, this is the source, You know, this is the basis, and then everything flows from that. And it flows from that, as we'll see in a minute, by way of causality and interdependence. And he uses the metaphor of uh, seeds. So aliyah is full of seeds, which you don't necessarily see or notice, until certain seeds are watered. And when those seeds are watered, then they sprout and they germinate, and then occurrence rolls on. The world takes place. Well, using that concept and that metaphor tells you that The seeds that you water or don't water, that that uh, power that you have to water seeds or withhold water from other seeds is a very powerful thing and that you really have a very strong uh, incentive to and almost obligation to practice uh, working with the mind and emotional states to shape conduct, and water seeds of goodness, and not water seeds of, of violence and, and division. So, so using this method, even though, like I say, there's nothing really and truly new about it, but using it emphasizes meditation, and the cultivation of meditation as a very powerful thing to do, and it also emphasizes that conduct really, really matters. Your conduct really, really matters because it's our conduct that shapes reality. So, you know, we often think, you know, there's nothing that I can do in this world. It's such a big world and I'm so powerless. But this is saying, no, actually you are very powerful because every thought, word, and deed has an impact on the world. The world is nothing but the sum total of all the causality of everything that exists and you are part of that. And your moment of goodness will produce a moment of goodness. So in laya as a storehouse, the potential for everything exists all the time. All the good in the world and all the evil in the world is there. And whether it becomes good or evil depends on our moment-to-moment conduct whether we're going to act for the good or not. So we, we have a big responsibility for the whole world to bring forth more goodness and, and less evil. And, and I think we should uh, appreciate and take seriously that responsibility. I think it's a really interesting thing that Thich Nhat Hanh, who I think is, is actually a, a great, uh, an unusually great Buddhist teacher who is an innovator in many ways. Although he's very traditional, he, he also is an innovator in a lot of ways. And as far as I know, and maybe somebody could, could tell me otherwise, but as far as I know, Thich Han did not emphasize you know, intense, intense, intense meditation to turn the mind around, revolutionize the mind, which is actually the phrase that is used in the Yogacara uh, system. He didn't, you know, in Zen, like, you know, our sessions uh, are less so now, but in the early days were very, very intense, and they were meant to, you know, produce very strong meditation uh, practice. I don't think Thich Nhat Hanh emphasized meditation like that. He certainly emphasized meditation, but as a way of calming the mind and, and, you know, getting clarity and insight, but not at that level of intensity. So in other words, you wouldn't think that he would be that interested in Yogacara But actually, he emphasized Yogacara thought a lot because of the ethical dimension. It was one of his most prominent metaphors, the idea of watering seeds of peacefulness and goodness. And and he thought that watering seeds of peacefulness and goodness was at the heart of all Buddhist practice, purifying the mind as a way of purifying the world. So he was very concerned about the world but he thought that to purify the world, you needed to purify the mind. And the conduct that you produced in the world needed to come from a pure mind. Anyway, Jay Garfield makes a comment on this verse that I want to quote to you. It's about a paragraph. And uh, I'll I'll say something about it because it's a little dense, but I think it really, it's, it's really pretty good. At least I thought so. Here's what Jay Garfield says. The next 11 verses after this one develop a delicate and logically acrobatic dialectic concerning the interplay of three pairs of contradictories and their relation to the three natures. The first pair is existence non-existence. The second pair is duality and unity uh, or duality and non-duality. The third is freedom from afflictions and afflictions. So he's going to apply those three contradictories to the three pairs of uh, to the uh, three um, natures. Vasubandhu will argue and that was my comment, now back to Jay. Vasubandhu will argue that each of the three natures is characterized by both members of each of these contraries. He then argues that these natures are each both identical to and distinct from one another. While it might be tempting and facile to think that here Vasubandhu is simply trading in paradox or irony, this would be a mistake. This important section of the treatise is concerned with the alternation in voices and perspectives represented by the three natures. The alternation in voices and perspectives represented by the three natures. They have a phenomenological side representing not only the tripartite ontological dimension Vasubandhu sees in all phenomena, but also the three phenomenological perspectives that together constitute the complex subjectivity that Vasubandhu envisions. So I think that that needs a little explanation, but I think it's a kind of a brilliant uh, insight into what Vasubandhu is trying to do here. First of all, to speak about Eight Consciousness and Three Natures, as he's done so far, although as I say the Eight Consciousnesses come in uh, by way of commentary, it creates the impression that there are Three Natures and Eight Consciousnesses. In other words, that these are things that actually exist. The, The world may be not real, but the Eight Consciousnesses are real, and the Three Natures are real. Because, after all, why define something if it doesn't exist? You know, what's the point of defining it? So at this point in the text, you know, we're reading along and we're really trying to understand, you know, what are these three natures and what are these eight consciousnesses? But in the next 11 verses, Vasubandhu is going to systematically say, first, that the three natures exist and they don't exist. Next, that they're the same, but they're all different. Next, that they're afflicted or deluded and not afflicted or awakened. In other words, he's going to deconstruct the three natures that he has constructed in the in the opening verses. And he's not doing this to make us crazy, you know, or trick us or, you know, be clever. He's doing it, and this is what the, the beautiful phraseology of, of Jay Garfield, he's doing it to provide... Maximum flexibility of voices and perspectives to give us permission for a, as Jay puts it, complex subjectivity. Because, you know, we're all stuck on a very kind of unitary sense of self, right? and a unitary and habitual way of responding to the world. And the intention here is to give us maximum perspective and maximum flexibility so that we can respond variously to the world as it appears to us differently on different occasions. We don't have to be just stuck with one perspective. And Zen stories are just like this. They're the same. You know, They are also, in all of their paradox, paradoxes and so on, they're not just trying to fool us or somehow like mess up our intellectual minds. They're trying to Give us a kind of flexibility so that we hold all of our concepts and our self views and our views of others and our views of the world very lightly. Because holding on to these things tightly gives us no flexibility, no way to have variety in our living, and they ca- cause us a lot of suffering. Because in fact, the world is not unitary the way we see it, the world is various. And if we can't respond to it variously, we suffer. So our tradition I think is very much like what Pasubandhu is, is doing here. In Zen, you know, rather than put forth this is the truth about things, you know, believe it, or this is the best practice, do it, and here's how you're supposed to do it, don't do it incorrectly. Our tradition values just like the Buddha valued, I think giving us what we need to be ready to respond to the variety of life with maximum openness and freedom from being stuck on this or that, and with the biggest heart possible. So there's a sense of flexibility. And to me, uh, you know, as uh, my wife Kathy is always saying, you know, Zazen is so creative. It is very creative. And, you know, in my book, I talk about imagination as being the heart and soul of spiritual practice. That's what the tradition is telling us, you know, if you stick to a view of reality, however wonderful it may be, you will suffer. And it will, it will, on one occasion or another, simply not be true anymore. We have to, we have to live differently every moment. For instance, and here we get into the question of existing and non-existing, if we insist that the world is real. To insist on that is to be frustrated and maybe uh, despairing when we see how terrible things can be and how little we can do about them. On the other hand, to say, well, the world is not real, so we don't really have to worry about it. We don't really have to take it seriously. That's to imagine that somehow we can escape the world simply by thinking otherwise. But when we understand that the world really is real and unreal, or we could say neither real nor unreal, or as it says in the next verses, that the three natures both exist and do not exist. That is to be open to, at any moment, to focus on the reality of the world or the unreality of the world. And In large measure, you know, the world is very unreal. My life is real. But so much of what I think about my life, right? All the ideas I have about it or all the imaginations I have about my life are mostly unreal. Mostly they're fantasies and I'm making these views up because I have a lot of karmic habits and so you know I look at things that way and if I don't know that I'm making it up I suffer if I understand that I'm making it up in other words if I understand that to a great extent the world really is of my experience really is unreal then I reduce my suffering the world I live in is real and it is unreal it exists and it doesn't exist that is the world does exist but it doesn't exist exactly as I think of it it doesn't exist in the way that I make it up to be now because of what I said a minute ago the emphasis on meditation a Zen is in the beginning was a very strongly a Yogacara tradition Bodhidharma is a real Yogacara adept his facing the wall for nine years his uncompromising and severe practice is for sure a Yogacara path. And, and, and it was a Yogacara school for the first five generations, but it changed with the Sixth Ancestor. If you look at the Sixth Ancestor Sutra, and, we, and we've studied it in seminar, a lot of times he says stuff that seems to denigrate meditation. Sometimes he says there is no meditation, it's not important. Once, at one point he says, meditation is just prajna, Jhana is prajna. In other words, meditation isn't a practice to get awakening, it's just wisdom itself. So whenever the wisdom is, appear, is appearing, meditation is there. So in other words, if you're a wise person, you're constantly meditating. The life itself is one long meditation retreat, everyday Zen, right? And the whole style of Zen dialogue and humor and seriousness and lightness at the same time comes into play after the time of the sixth ancestor. Bodhidharma is not too humorous. Bodhidharma is deadly serious if you read his texts, if they are his texts. But the humor and the lightness comes after the sixth ancestor, who emphasized not the Yogachara teachings, but the Diamond Sutra, the Emptiness Teachings. All dharmas are empty. Therefore, as he writes in his poem, there is no mind to investigate. So I think Zen practice, as we know it now, is both sides. It both when we have Sashin, you know, we try to be serious about our practice and really drill into our zazen. But at the same time, we also do Huy practice of of dialogue and conversation and the understanding that awakening is here all the time. So that's verse 9. Verse 10. Existence, and now this is the beginning of the 11 verses. Existence and non-existence, duality and unity, freedom from affliction and afflicted. Through characteristics and through distinctions, These natures are known to be profound. So that's Jay's translation. Ben is a little different if you are looking at Ben's. So the verse seems to be telling us, as I said a minute ago, that the three natures uh, are existent and non-existent, dual and non-dual, afflicted and free from affliction. And yet they have various characteristics that are the same and also distinctions that make them different. And he says, (coughs) this reality, like that, is profound. And Ben uses the same word to translate profound. And I think (coughs) profound here means, specifically, these three natures are so deep, and so deeply true, that they cannot be pinned down. This teaching cannot be one thing or one idea or one feeling or one experience or knowing anything different from anything else. In other words, the ultimate truth in terms of this text cannot be a truth at all. It couldn't be something felt or known or explained or experienced because if it could be, It might be very valuable and important, but it would not be profound in this specific sense. Because the three natures are profound in this sense, we can deeply trust them, they can be the basis for our practice, and they can be the way we find liberation. At the beginning of his commentary to this text, Ben reveals another important point, that lurks behind this text. And another reason why Vasubandhu writes it. I already mentioned the two points that I think he has in mind as he writes, I I said already, encouragement for meditation and encouragement in our understanding the importance of conduct. And here's a third reason. Vasubandhu is trying to show us that what we're aiming for is not liberation from samsara, as it seems, is the proposal for early Buddhism. In early Buddhism, if you read the Pali texts, you get the idea that samsara is an actual fact and nirvana is an actual fact and that when we're liberated, we will leave samsara and enter nirvana and we will be free. We will be immune. We will be, our, our passion will be extinguished. This text of three natures is saying, and now it's beginning to really come out and say this, there are no facts. Samsara is not a fact. It's not a truly existing thing. It both exists and doesn't exist. In fact, it is a ripening. It is the three natures themselves. And so is nirvana. So that means there is no nirvana to get outside of samsara. So this is basic value of Mahayana Buddhism, right? We're not leaving beings behind in samsara so that we can enter nirvana. We're not trying to get liberated from samsara because there is no liberation from samsara. There's only liberation within samsara. Which means that we will continue to stand side by side not above or beyond beings in samsara so that we can be of service. And when you think about it, despite the fact that the Pali texts uh, do seem to say nirvana is different from samsara, forget samsara, it's pain, go to nirvana. If you look at the story of the Buddha in the Pali texts, well, wait a minute, if the Buddha entered nirvana on awakening night, how come he didn't like disappear in a puff of smoke? Or or go into some kind of wonderful heaven where he could look down on the rest of us benevolently? That's what you would expect, right? How come he kept doing the same thing (laughs) that he did before for 45 more years? He wandered around, homeless, walking many miles a day all of his life, depending on the kindness of strangers for his food. And every single day of his life, without taking a day off, according to what we can understand, he, he practiced the Way, and taught the Way, and interacted with others, so as to be of some benefit. And when he got old, uh, despite the fact that he had entered nirvana, he had back aches and stomach aches and, and and he really got tired of dragging his carcass around and he said, Okay, enough i i want this is it you know i 'm not going on anymore i 'm like an old cart strapped together with chewing gum and it 's falling apart and i i just uh, this is it so in other words, he suffered the pains of old age just like anybody and then he laid down and died or according to the text, he appeared to die. It was a parikalpita vision, he appeared to die. And we learn from the Lotus Sutra that that was not really, that was just an appearance. In fact, uh, he's still floating around somewhere, probably on your cushion and on mine. Anyway, this Verse 10 is a general statement about the three natures and how they exist and they don't. They're the same and different. And then the next verse, now, uh, Vasubhan is going to systematically give us the details of this. And here's verse 11. Since it appears as existent, though it is non-existent, the imagined nature is said to have the characteristics of existence and non-existence. So he's talking now about parikalpita, the world of appearances. In the case of the world of appearances, this is the world we all live in, that we take to be the real world. Of course it exists, because here we are, you know, experiencing it, talking about it, seeing, hearing it. If we fall down and break our arm, we don't ask the question, you know, is this real or not? We, you know, we do what we need to do to fix ourselves and we know it happened because we felt it. It really hurt. So, no doubt, our experience ex- experiences exist and are real. But in the big picture of things, you know, the more we contemplate our experiences, the less clear it is. Our breaking our arm is one thing for us, but it's something very different. Totally different experience for the doctor who is setting our bone. And later on, when the arm heals, what is that experience of breaking our arm at that time? And when we're dead and we're no longer in this human body, what is that experience then? Did it happen at all? Could we say that it happened at all? And how did it happen? And in what way did it happen? And where is the pain that we felt in a moment now? In fact, now that I think about it, where was the pain exactly in the moment that we felt it? So it really is our ordinary experience that daily reality exists, undeniably, and yet it doesn't exist in the way we think about it. Jay gives the example of of when you see water shimmering ahead on the highway, when you're driving, you know, in Texas on a long stretch of road and it's really hot, you see, you see the water shimmering up ahead of you. Does that water exist? Yes, you see it. It exists as a visual object, but it doesn't exist as water. The idea that it's water is mistaken, but you see it. Similarly, my breaking my arm exists as a sensation or a memory or a picture on an x-ray But it doesn't exist exactly in the way that I think it does. So, verse 12 says this. Since it exists as an illusory entity, and is non-existent in the way it appears, the other dependent nature, so now this is the second nature, Paratantra, the other dependent nature is said to have the characteristics of existence and non-existence. So here we learn how the other dependent nature both exists and doesn't exist. Now, if I were writing this text, I would say, okay, well, all three natures exist and don't exist. That's it. That's all I need to say. But Vasubandhu is very subtle and, and very uh, particular. And he is showing us that these three natures exist and don't exist, each in its particular way. They don't all exist and non-exist in the same way. Each one has their own way. So the way of the other dependent nature uh, is different. The way that it exists and doesn't exist is different from the way that the imaginary nature exists and doesn't exist. So here uh, I'm going to echo now something that Ben brings up in his commentary at this point. Uh, He brings up another... Teaching that is related to this, but not the same as this, the Two Truths. The Two Truths is a teaching of Madhyamaka Buddhism, which is the emptiness teachings. And it's very similar, as you'll see, to the Three Natures, but it's different. And then we can investigate, you know, what's the difference. So the Two Truths are the Relative Truth and the Absolute Truth. And these uh, we're very familiar with because we chant the Heart Sutra all the time, and the Heart Sutra says form is emptiness, and form is relative, and emptiness is absolute. So we're very familiar with the relative and absolute truth, and the Heart Sutra says form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness is no other than form. The relative and the absolute truths are one and the same, and we have to honor both sides the relative truth we better honor because we would be foolish to ignore it and the absolute truth we would be idiots to ignore and mostly we are idiots mostly we do ignore the absolute truth I mean we're sitting to kind of get a little used to the absolute truth so that we don't ignore it But mostly we do. And then, not only do we become idiots, but we also become fools, because ignoring the absolute truth makes us then stumble a lot in the relative world. Because we're stuck in the relative without understanding its real nature as absolute, and a lot of bad things start to happen. Why is form emptiness? Because of interdependence. There isn't a something, there is only all things connected. In other words, there's nothing, there's no separate thing. Now, according to Indian thought, which is very sophisticated and straightforward, to exist is to exist independently. There's no such thing as existence which is not, in. that's the bottom line of existence, is to be independent. If I exist, it means I'm not you and I'm not other things. I am myself. That's what makes me be me. So I am independent of you. Yes, you might say we're connected in a lot of ways and I couldn't get by without you. That's true, but I'm not you. I'm independent of you. Our connections are incidental. So I'm me and you're you and we both exist. But the emptiness teaching says no, no. That is not right at all. If you really look into anything, including yourself, you will not be able to find it. So there's no me. There is a body. There is a mind. But whoops, if I look for a body, there's no body. There's just like arms and legs and a head and eyebrows. And there's no mind. There's just thoughts and feelings, and perceptions. In other words, when you look at anything closely enough, ultimately it sort of vanishes. And it turns out that everything is just a network of relationships without any things that are related. It appears to the mind as this or that separate entity, so we do have that imaginary experience, But that experience is empty of any actual independent existence. Independent existence is is an illusion. So my point here is that the two truths, the absolute and the relative truth, what holds them together is dependency, causality, interdependence. But in the Three Natures teaching, interdependence, or causality, is given its own special nature, right? There's three natures, and causality is not just a connector, it is a nature in and of itself. So why does Vasubandhu want to conceptualize it that way? Well, for the reasons we said before, because, number one, it emphasizes mind. Because in this text, specifically, Dependency doesn't just mean all things depend on each other. It means, specifically in this text, all things depend on mind. They all depend on alaya. And so, therefore, there is no independent existence because everything depends on mind. So that's why Vasubandhu wants to make that a characteristic of things rather than just a force that connects things. Nothing is separate and independent because everything depends on mind. And second, as I was saying before, in this teaching dependency or interdependence has to do with karmic effects, as I said, the seeds that we water. So to make this dependency into the second nature, to emphasize it that way, is is to emphasize, as I said earlier, our our conduct. Because, although the emptiness teachings repeat over and over and over again, that it, when you say all dharmas are empty, it doesn't mean that all dharmas don't matter or are un, or unreal. It constantly says, all dharmas being empty is not a form of nihilism. It repeats this endlessly. Nevertheless, I think that Vasubandhu had the feeling that people who follow the emptiness teachings, despite all of that, were bound to have a more lax moral practice. Because, hey, all dharmas are empty. Yes, they're not empty, but they're also empty. So, like, I'm not that worried about my conduct. So when you set up dependence as one of the characteristics of existence, you're putting a stronger emphasis and you're being more serious about conduct and on the importance of working with mind and emotions and choices and motivations. So get back to the verse itself, Uh, Vasubandhu is saying that dependency, or maybe we would just say karma, uh, that's uh, verse 12, which I just read, he's saying that karma both exists and doesn't exist. Just like the illusion of water on the highway, karma exists, we perceive it, but it doesn't exist in that its existence is illusory. So this is really an important thing to understand, and and this is the secret of the famous fox koan in Zen. This is the, this is the uh, issue in that story, and it's something that Dogen writes about quite a bit in Shobogenzo. The awakened person is both free of cause and effect and not free of cause and effect. Because the person knows cause and effect as illusory, They are free of it. And they're not free of it because the illusion exists and must be taken seriously on its own terms. So practically speaking, what this means to us is that we really do have to follow precepts. There's no fooling around or taking it lightly. But we don't need to have an excess of guilt and remorse and self-recrimination, and we can be very capacious in our ability to forgive and love ourselves and others, even when they commit misconduct and must pay the price for it. It's one thing to throw somebody in jail. It's another thing to throw somebody in jail and say to them, you are an evil, horrible person and I hate you forever, which is sort of, sort of what we say to people most of the time when we throw them in jail. And then we do the same to ourselves. So I think there's endless contemplation of this question of the uh, existence and the non-existence of karma. I don't think I've said the final word. So, uh, verse 13. And now he's talking about the third of the three natures and how it also is both existent and non-existent. 13. Since it is the non-existence of duality and exists as non-duality the consummate nature is said to have the characteristics of existence and non-existence. So the third nature is Ben translates as complete realized nature, J translates as consummate nature. It It also exists and doesn't exist. So when you read this, you find yourself over and over again lulled into the idea that, well, nothing else exists, but the consummate nature for sure exists, you know. And that's what I I hope to somehow get in on that somehow, you know, because it's really real. But no, it doesn't exist either. It does, but also it doesn't. It doesn't exist as duality. It doesn't exist as me over here and you over there, me over here and the world over there. But consummate reality does exist as non-duality, as the fundamental reality root or consciousness beyond my descriptions or experience of it. How do we know that's true? Well, we can't exactly know that it's true if knowing means I know something or I have an experience of something, because all somethings are not, strictly speaking, consummate reality. They are imaginary appearance reality. And yet, as we're learning in these verses, since the three natures are distinct from one another and also not distinct from one another, appearance reality is itself also non-dual consummate reality, which I am experiencing all the time. That's how come, you know, somebody gets awakened when they hear a pebble strike bamboo, or look up and see a plum blossom. They are seeing, in their seeing, consummate reality. Because it's there constantly. That's the only thing we're ever seeing. Now, I suppose that Bodhidharma sat facing the wall for nine years because he wanted to know consummate reality. And maybe he did know it. And I guess that Buddha went through his many years of practice and sat under the Bodhi tree because he wanted to know consummate reality. And maybe he did know it, or we should say does know it, and is knowing it. But if that's true, they don't know it as an object of knowledge. They know it through the whole body, heart, mind, and conduct. It infuses body, speech, and mind. And yet there is nothing in particular to be known that wasn't already known from the beginning. So that is my talk on verses 9 to 13. And before I forget to say it, let me remind us all that uh, we're not going to meet next week. Because it's, uh, we, we have a custom of taking the day before Thanksgiving off uh, so that you can spend the day cooking, which we will be doing. Uh, um, so we'll meet in two weeks, and when we meet in two weeks, we'll be in person at the church and I'm urging all of you folks in the Bay Area who can do it to come so that we can be together and I hope especially that Natalie will come Uh, you'll let me know Natalie whether you're coming because we want to celebrate you and we want to have a cup of tea and a cookie and and celebrate Natalie if she's there in fact actually she doesn't even need to be there we can celebrate her anyway on the computer we can celebrate her so that's on the 29th um and uh between now and then, meaning this coming Saturday, we have a sitting at Green Gulch, so please come to the sitting. I think I will not uh talk about Vasubandhu because it might be a bit much for somebody showing up to the sitting out of the blue, hearing about this crazy stuff. So I'll I'll figure something else out to talk about. So let's get, let's get into groups. I'm, I think we have time for this, maybe about a 15-minute session of groups of three. And my question for you is, particularly, and, I, and this is not the first time we've discussed this, but it's so important that you have to talk about it all the time, and I think that you will, in the lifetime of practice, understand it differently at different points. And that is this question about being bound by causality and not being bound by causality, the fact that cause and effect... Does exist and in awakening also doesn't exist. And how do you see that in terms of your own practice and your own conduct? How do you understand that and how do you bring that to bear in your own practice of precepts and right conduct? So I guess Maya is our host and you'll put us into groups, Maya, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then uh, I think we can do Recording stopped. about three minutes per, per person and about 15 minutes total. So just a take, just a quick take on this. Thank you. See you soon.